The rest of us can turn our Bibles to Leviticus 19. That's page 92 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in front of you, unless you're in the front row. Um, and uh, you can grab one and, and turn to page 92. And for those that are visiting, we are studying the book of Leviticus. We are in chapter 19. And Lord willing, we'll get to the end of the book by the end of the year. And so um, thank you for joining us uh, with us. And you're just picking up a glimpse of where we've been studying uh, this year in God's Word. Uh, but we're looking forward to continuing on through it. There may be no other way to show your... Uh, distinctness as a Christian, or at least certainly in one way, would be doing what we've witnessed this morning in, by being baptized. Um, apart from your Christian faith, getting dunked in water would seem very pointless, and it would look quite silly. And yet, it's a way to express the difference that uh, Christ has made in changing our nature from one of an earthly one to a spiritual one, uh, as Christ has come to dwell and live inside of us. And so, I think the baptism is fitting this morning in some ways as we talk about Leviticus 19, in Leviticus 19, this idea of distinction uh, and being distinct. And this, this word has come up several times in different ways in our series. So holiness, set apart, sacred, all of these words are also words that would be kind of alongside of this idea of being distinct. And the uh, premise being that we are to be different from the world. And we've heard that as we've gone through this. Certainly Israel, the nation of Israel, was supposed to be different from the nations that surrounded them when they went into uh, the land that God had promised. And so our theme, certainly this morning in this text, I believe, is this idea of being distinct and distinctness and distinction. So let's read Leviticus 19. I'm just going to read verse 35 to 37. Our whole... um, section this morning, as you will see, is verses 19 right to the end of the chapter. We're going to just read the final verses, the final few verses, and uh, encourage you to read these later, um, the rest of it, as you uh, reflect back on this morning. So picking up in verse 33, it says this, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, and a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. At the beginning of chapter 19, we were commanded, or we as the nation of Israel, we see this command, you can read it there, you shall be holy because I am holy. We see this command at the beginning. And so holiness, as we've kind of, we've been really keying in on that theme the past few weeks as we've been getting into the holiness code and kind of getting into the weeds of like what did Israel, you know, what did God expect from them as far as some of the rules and the regulations and what was God's law. But the reality is, as we've kind of considered it, is that holiness is not a behavioral issue. As in, do better and obey more. And we've tried very hard, I think, as we've walked through Leviticus, to steer our hearts away from thinking that we we just need to do more and be better. So holiness is not a behavioral issue. It's really an affection issue. Where Where are your affections? Affections. And Jesus says, and and Scott certainly shared with us last week, 
about, the lo- about loving our neighbors. But Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So our obedience then starts, according to John, with a love for God. That's where it starts. It starts with a love for God. And so doing all this stuff apart from loving God is not holiness, and it's not going to work. But what that means for us then is that if our affections are engaged, our behavior is going to follow naturally. And so we can stop trying to just simply obey God for the sake of obeying Him, but we can actually spend time trying to get to know Him and to love Him more and appreciate Him more for who He is, to pursue God, to love Him more. And so if you were reading in, in our, to start rather in our verse 19, you would think going back to last week that there's this, there's this drastic change. We talk about loving our neighbor in verse 18, and then verse 19 picks up with, it says, you shall keep my statutes, and it just goes right into a bunch of laws and rules that we would read over and just kind of glaze our eyes and, and feel like none of this really applies to me, and this is just a bunch of extra rules, and, and maybe feel like, you know, what does this have to do with holiness or with obey? Why would God command these things? Certainly. And so loving your neighbor is a little different than, as verse 19 says, mixing your, breeding your animals or mixing seed or even mixing your clothing. But in Israel, as Scott pointed out last week, in Israel, holiness was, was all-encompassing. It, it was, God had commands, and I, I guess, as Scott said, there was something for, there was something for every area of your life, right? It was, it was a little bit maybe intrusive feeling because God regulated everything. And we, we know that based on where we've come through in Leviticus, we've seen that. And so for all of Israel, it was the same. It was that, it was that uh, feeling that God regulated everything. We must keep then separate what God keeps separate. In the major decisions and in the minor decisions, we certainly would see that here. The major things in loving your neighbor and loving God, but also in just the minor, minute, day-to-day things, you know, our work and the way we're the way we relate to ourselves and to God. And so this theme of being distinct comes, and I'm gonna share, as we look through this morning, I want to look at three things, three areas that God calls called the nation of Israel to be distinct in ways certainly that it would have looked like, and there are certainly others, but as we follow in this text, this is what we see. And the first thing being that Israel was supposed to be distinct in their concern for boundaries in verse 19, their concern for boundaries. And we read this mixing of breeding and of seeds, and it's, it's this idea of taking two different kinds and putting them together. And God had, had, had commanded the nation of Israel not to do that not to take two different things and to blur the lines between God's created order. And that's our first thing is there was concern for boundaries in God's created order. And so the idea being that that the nation of Israel was to preserve the diversity of God's created world and not to mix species together. Now some would debate whether or not this was with the animals, certainly with a mixing of just um, like of plowing and, and yoking them together, but certainly there's also this idea of breeding them. And then even with the seeds, the same idea comes across with the clothing. God has a created order, and there's no real reason given to us in the text, or certainly it's, it's maybe lost on us now. There's no reason other than that this is one of the things that God had asked the nation of Israel to do. But it seems as we've gone through the text that this would have set them apart as distinct from the rest of the world in their preservation of God's created order. And so the reality for us is that just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. 
And certainly you've heard that and maybe said that to your kids before. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you need to do it or should do it. God's creation and, his, and everything that he's created has order and it has a balance to it. It has boundaries and we ought to be careful to protect those, those things that God has created and called holy. And so in that way, Israel was to be distinct in their concern for boundaries. The second thing is in their concern for God. And I have a few different references there. We're going to kind of pull all of these commands apart and then put them in groups. And so we're going to see a few different references and their concern for God because they don't really have an order to them specifically. But God was their Lord, their creator, their sustainer, their provider. That's who God was to the nation of Israel. And so they, ought, they were to have a concern for God because of who he was to them and because he deserved to be respected as their creator. And so the first area we see their concern for God was to be in the giving, uh, in giving God the first fruits. In verse 23 to 25, we see the command to give God the first fruits. In every area of their lives, even in agriculture, they were to, they were to give that to the Lord. And so as we read the text in those verses, we see that the first three years of, of a new tree growth, the fruit was to be left on the tree maybe possibly giving it time to establish itself as a tree. And then on the fourth year, all of the fruit was to be given to the Lord, set apart as holy to the Lord as a sacrifice for Him, to honor Him for who He was. And then on the fifth year, they were allowed to continue harvesting that tree uh, for themselves in also giving God the first fruits of that harvest. As we know, as we read through Leviticus, we've heard of that first fruits uh, idea, that theme, and it certainly comes out Uh, in this text this morning. And this law specifically would have reinforced that God is the one who owns the land. He's the one who owns it. He owns the fruit of it. He created it. He's the one who causes the growth in it. That's all by God. He's in control. He's the one that blesses with the harvest. And Proverbs 3 verse 9 and 10 would echo this same thing. It says this, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. God honors those who honor Him in giving of their first fruits and, and acknowledging that it is God is the one who gives those things. And so the way that we practice that today is by giving God the first of everything that we have. The first of our time, the first of our resources, because we know that God is the one who gave those things to us. We didn't earn those um, by obeying Him or by um, being, you know, a certain, you know, being certain at a certain health point or whatever the case is. God gives us every day because of His grace and mercy. And He gives those things to us. And so we honor Him with those things. And, and the question for us is then, what does that look like? What would that look like for me to give God the first fruits of what He has given me in, my re- in the resources that He's given me, the ways that He has Bless me. What would that look like to give him the first share of my time? I know morning people love that. And then the evening people, you know, they hate when I say that because they don't like to get up until 10 a.m. They're like, I don't want to do the, you know, the, that thing. I'd rather sleep in. And I'm not suggesting that you have to get up at 6 a.m. and, you know, sit out with a coffee on the porch and listen to the birds chirp your ears off. I'm just suggesting that we give God valuable time that we have and not just maybe the end of the day when we are maybe at our tiredest and ready for bed. And certainly the same principle with our resources. They were to give God the first fruits of the harvest that He had given them. In Matthew 6, we're reminded of this 
when Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we were reminded of our treasures and the things that we value, and they, and they show. The second way that they were to be distinct was in forsaking pagan practices in verse 26 to 28. The context of dead in that, if you read through those verses, you'll see this word dead. And, and in the context, what I think what we're getting, what we're seeing is that there is this, there is this worship of a false god. And, um, and all of these things, tattoos, cutting your hair, your beard, the eating of blood, the fortune telling, the omens, all of this is associated around this false, this worship of this false god. And these are pagan practices that were used in order to worship God, and the, worship their God rather. And so there's nothing morally, I'm going to say it in a Baptist church, there's nothing morally wrong with a tattoo. There's nothing morally, there's nothing inherently evil about tattoos. I know, right? Crazy. Putting ink on your body permanently is not evil in and of itself. And some people have come to this text and said, look, God tells Israel not to be tattooed. But the context tells us, and, and that's why they may be misled a little bit and misguided in using this text, because context tells us that the pagan, this is a pagan practice. This is why God condemned it, because it was, if you were doing it back then, you looked like somebody who worshiped a false god or you practice the things that the pagans did and so god said don't do that right don't do that and that's a little different today tattoos and and beards i know we don't have to tell jeff to cut his off he can keep it according to this text amen right yes there's one or two amens those those things were associated with with evil and wrong things and so that is why God asked them not to do that that's not the case today and so we can grow our hair and we can grow our beards only down to about our chest Jeff and then we've got to stop <laughs> and so we see they were to be distinct in forsaking pagan practices so some of these things maybe you know they weren't necessarily evil in and of themselves but it was hey guys don't do this because of its association and, and where we see it used in the uh, secular world. And maybe so instead what we could ask is, will this, this thing that I want to do, whether it is you know, tattoos or you know, growing my hair or doing these certain, these certain things, is will this bear fruit for God? Maybe that's a better question that we could ask. How is this going to, this action going to bear fruit for God? These things that I do, these, these things that the world also does that are not evil, how, uh, how will they bear fruit for the Lord? Because the, the God of the modern world is self today. It's not the God of death, the God of fertility, uh, although those are certainly in certain contexts maybe, but the God of the Western world is the God of self, and we worship ourselves, certainly. We want what's best for us, right? We say, the world says, I want what's best for me. I want, I want God to be described as and put in a box and so that I can understand him and, and he's the kind of God that I like, right? The, and so we kind of form our own understanding of God and we take certain verses out of the Bible or we ignore certain ones or we say this is who he is without understanding the context because we don't like that description of God. And maybe, maybe most importantly where this is seen is we, when we say I know what's better for me than God does. I know what's best for me um, even as opposed to God understanding that and knowing that as my creator. And so I know better than God what's best for me. We worship ourselves and what we feel and what we want. And so in reading this, we should be asking ourselves, what are ways that, that we could live purposefully showing that we don't worship ourselves? 
that we have somebody who paid a pen, the penalty for our sin on the cross and died for us and bought us with his blood, and, and we're not our own. We are actually God's. Everything that we have, everything that we are is actually the Lord's because of who he is and what he's done for us. Who has the final authority over your life choices? Who has the final authority, you or God? Israel was to distinct, distinguish themselves by forsaking pagan practices. And then in verse 30, we see they were to distinguish themselves by reverencing God, by having a reverence for God. And we see a command that we've already seen early, earlier in Leviticus to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And then we also see this idea of reverencing the sanctuary, fearing, having an awe for the sanctuary, meaning to honor the place where God dwelled and where God revealed himself. Because in the nation of Israel, God dwelled in the sanctuary, right? That's where he, that's where he spoke to his people. That was where he dwelled. And so, there's, and so the command was to honor that, which would mean conducting yourself when you're there in a way that would be honoring to the Lord, not entering into the sanctuary unclean. That's why we have the sacrifices that we've learned about through Leviticus 19 and keeping evil pagan practices out of the sanctuary. And Jesus kind of gives us an example of that when he goes into the temple and, and flips the tables because of the way that they were dishonoring the Lord's house and, and where God was to be worshipped. So we honor the true and the living God. But certainly for us as believers, you know, there is no, God is not any more present here than he is with us when we leave. And so for us, what that means today is honoring where God dwells, honoring the place where God dwells, which is with us wherever we are. If you are a believer and have placed your faith in him, God dwells inside of you. And if God is then now your neighbor, because he's living inside of you and he dwells you and dwells in you, then that should radically impact the way that you live, right? That should radically impact and change those things because God dwells inside of you. And so distinguish yourself by having a reverence for God. And then finally, your, their uh, concern for God was to be seen in going to God for wisdom, going to God for wisdom in verse 31. They were to avoid mediums and fortune tellers. If you were to read 1 Samuel 28, it's in our questions, and I encourage you to do that as you go. It's, a, it's just a, it's a weird story. It's crazy. Um, and I was just reading it over this week again, going like, this is where the horror movies get their idea from. 1 Samuel 28, like this is it. You know, like the conjuring and all those, you know, crazy raised people from the dead ones. Anyways, because this is, is it happened in 1 Samuel 28. And I don't know if you remember the story, but Saul, he consults a necromancer. A necromancer is somebody who communicates with dead people. And so the Philistine army is coming in around Saul. This at the same time that he is chasing King David. And God has already told Saul, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and give it to David. And in 1 Samuel 28, we read this story of uh, Samuel the prophet had died. And so Saul is looking for wisdom. And God speaks through and spoke through the prophets. That's how he spoke to the kings, right? And so Samuel is dead. In verse 6 it says, And when, God, and when Saul, inquired, Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. So God did not answer. Saul was coming to God and God, it was quiet. Radio silence. And the prophet is dead, so you can't go to Samuel for wisdom. And so Saul, because the, the law in the land was that you cannot practice necromancy that was illegal, Saul had to get himself all disguised and dressed up and go to this lady that was then going to con 
talk to, speak to the dead for him probably, and in this case, res- or talk, speak to Samuel for him and, and ask Samuel, you know, as far as what Saul was wanting to find out. And so Samuel then, he, Saul goes, and this is all quiet, and he's like, I promise nothing's going to happen here. And then she consults Samuel for him, and Samuel says, what are you doing? And Samuel repeats exactly what he already said to Saul before he died, was that God is going to take the kingdom from you and give it to David. And then if you read the story, Samuel, or Saul is just completely undone by that, uh, and, he, and he refused to eat, and he just he can't believe what he's heard. But he consults a necromancer for wisdom because God did not answer him. All to say, what do we do when God is silent? What do we do when God is silent? When you pray, when you're asking the Lord for answer prayer for wisdom, what do we do when God is silent? We still continue to turn to Him for wisdom. We walk by faith, we live according to His Word, and we we trust in Him and in His timing, even when He doesn't reveal it to us, because God's not going to reveal everything to you. I know we love to be in control, we love to know everything and what's going on and what's going to happen, and yet God in His sovereignty does not reveal those things to us, and so we ought to walk by faith and trust Him, and trust Him for being in control. And then finally, the third thing that we see in, their, in, in the nation of Israel as they're commanded to be distinct is that they are to be distinct concerning um, other people and having concern for other people or respect for other people. That's our third and final point this morning. The one way that they would do that, seen in verse 20 to 22, is that they would honor their word. And this law is refreshing as we read through it. Basically, what, what happens in verse 20 to 22 is is that a man laid with a woman who was a slave, and so she was not free, he was, and he, and he laid with her. And uh, as a result, we just see as we read through those verses what God calls to happen because of that. But it's refreshing because the slave was not treated as an adulterer because she could not or was not free. She couldn't consent to what had happened. And so this law was a protection for the slave that was not free. And a slave didn't have the same rights as a full citizen, but they were treated better than other law codes that we would read about in the ancient Near East. And certainly as you read through the Old Testament law, you see, we see that adultery, according to Deuteronomy, with a free woman, uh, that would result in death for both the male and the female, if there's adultery committed according to God's law. But this man, in this case, he swore to obey and keep the covenant that God had set up with the nation of Israel. And so this would have been seen as a breach of faith, a breach of faith. And so he was required to make a sacrifice, a guilt offering, which was the offering of the highest regard, the bull offering. He was to be made for his sin, but the slave was not to be treated uh, or did not have to go and make an offering for the sin because she wasn't seen as guilty in that particular case. And so Israel was to honor their word and keep their word. And then the, in 29, we see they were to honor their daughter, honor your daughter, your children. There may have been a temptation in order to make more money, to get out of debt, to sell your, your offspring, your daughters into prostitution or those kinds of things to make money. And also because of the worship of false gods and the gods of fertility, there had been this temptation to offer your daughter as a way to uh, appease the, the gods that they worshipped, certainly. And these things were condemned by God for obvious reasons. Devoting your daughter to a heathen shrine would not be honoring to God in, in any way. 
And the reality is that sin and those kinds of sin then fosters more and more sin. And as we give in to sin and as we, as we allow those things, sin to ruminate in our lives, it gives way to more and worse sins that just continues to snowball. And certainly in the land of Israel, in doing this, you would be degrading the land by having this practice, this evil practice going on in the nation of Israel. And so the, the nation of Israel was to honor the children that God had graciously given them. And we know the scriptures, what they say about children and how they are a gift from God, and they were to be honored as such. And certainly the nation of Israel was to do that and be different from the pagan uh, world and, and nations that did not do that. And then finally, uh, for third point, I guess we have one more after this, we see, but respecting the elderly. Um, they, were to be, they were to be distinct in their respect for those that were older than them. And there's much to be gained from somebody who has walked life before us. There's much to be gained. I know we, especially as young people, you know, it's so hard to tell a young person what to do, right? Because they think they know everything. And then you're like, just wait till you get, you know, gray hair and realize that you don't know anything. And, you know, in 20, 40 years, you're going to know a lot more than you did, Right. And we, we know this to be true, and yet it's time and time again a reminder for us. They have that experience for a reason. And God has brought them through life in that way and given them those experiences for a reason. We ought to honor and respect the elderly as, as we should for how God has uh, taught them and used them and can use them. And so the question is, do we look to them for wisdom? Do we look to them for wisdom, or do we prefer not to... Proverbs 20, verse 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Wisdom comes with age, certainly. And we ought to be respectful of those uh, that have walked life before us. And then finally, the nation of Israel was to be distinct, and this goes back to what Scott shared last week, by treating others, their neighbor, lovingly and justly. This is an echo of the preceding verses. Love your neighbor as yourself, Scott said, but I don't even like my neighbor. Remember that? I don't even like my neighbor. How do I love my neighbor that I don't even like? Why do we do that? Because you're once loved by God when you were strangers in Egypt. That's what, the, that's what verses 33 to 36 say. Love your neighbor because I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You were once slaves. So God calls us to love because love has been shown to us. Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As enemies of God, God loved us. So why treat others lovingly and justly? Because of the love that's been shown us. Although obedience is not the means of God's favor, it is the proper and necessary response to God's benevolence on your behalf and on my behalf. So love of God, love for God, and love of our neighbors must still govern our actions as, as Scott shared. How would that look today? What would, what would a love look like that's totally free of anything self-seeking at all? We can't even imagine that because of our imperfections and because of our evil desires. But what would that look like to love somebody totally free of any self-seeking at all? Love that would seek the good of others all the time the desires of others all the time, to all people. Coming back to this theme of being distinct, to not live holy lives would be bizarre, totally bizarre for the nation of Israel. It would be like 
a husband who is married and he wears his wedding ring and is married, but maybe once a week actually lives out being married. And you would look at that and you would say, that is totally bizarre. How does that work? That doesn't make any sense. Totally incompatible. You're married, you say you are, but you live it out once a week. In that case, the husband's profession would not match his identity at all. And such is the case for some of us as we follow Christ. If we were to measure the love and the benevolence that we showed other people, that we showed God's God's people that He died for, it would be incompatible with our profession as followers of Jesus Christ. So we ought to treat others lovingly and justly because of what has been done for us. I want to conclude with a few, reading a few verses and reminding of us of, us of this important truth about holiness. We imitate God's holiness by obeying His commands. And God's law is a reflection of His character. We've said that before, I believe. But God's laws and the things that He... And it's so easy to read these verses here and just say, what is going on? Why? And yet, everything that God commanded Israel was a reflection of who God was. His justice, His mercy, His grace, His love, His patience. All of God's laws are a reflection of His character. They're not just arbitrary laws that God is giving to control His people. 1 Peter 2, verse 15 and 16 say this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. It'd be my prayer that nobody could bring a charge against anybody here except that the charge of their holiness and their distinctness, their distinctiveness as followers of Christ. That would be my prayer, that that would be the only charge that could be brought against you. Not that they were selfish or self-seeking or proud or arrogant people, but that we were, they were outdone by the goodness that was shown and done to them. As First as Peter says, by, it says that doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There's nothing to bring against you. Because when we're hypocrites, we make a mockery of the gospel. But holy living, it makes the gospel shine bright. That Jesus actually died for my sins and that he actually paid an incredible price for my sin and that he loves me, as we've sung about this morning, and they died for me, and how could I not, as a result of that, love those around me and love others around me and love God? Remembering, though, that as Philippians 2 says, that God is the one who works in you. For as God who works in you, remember both to will and to work. So when we act in obedience to God, it is never an opportunity for us to pat ourselves on the back and encourage ourselves and say, good job, self, you did great, you obeyed God's word. That is not the case. Philippians 2 makes it very clear that God is the one who works in your life. Any act of obedience, any step in love towards God is totally the grace of God in your life and the grace of God outworking in your life. And so we give God praise and thank you for that, certainly. And then finally, as we think about God's law and His commands, I want to read Psalm 16, verse 11. One of my favorite verses, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see those words, the fullness of joy. This overabounding fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore.
We obey God's commands because they are what bring the greatest happiness, the greatest lasting true joy. That's why we obey God's commands, in part because of what He's done for us and, and looking to that and loving God. But we love Him because we see that that's what God, that's what His commands bring. And so we pursue holiness because of those same things. We pursue holiness because that is what brings the greatest lasting true joy and happiness is loving God and knowing God more. That's what's going to fill our hearts. And if you read Psalm 119, which we just came out of a few weeks ago in our Bible reading plan, you see these words, blessed, I praise you, wondrous, delight, delighted I am in your commands. And you read Psalm 119 and you almost think the psalmist sounds crazy in what he's saying. Like, I love your commands. It's my delight to do your commands. Teach me your commands. I praise you for them. And it describes, the psalmist certainly, it describes his relationship with God and how he loved God's word. And I just read that and I go, man, I wish and I, and I pray that that would be us, that we would love God's word and his commands enough and love him enough that we would find true joy in obeying those things because of who God is and what he's done. And there's a great joy in pursuing God and obeying him and loving him and following him. And so living a life of distinction is not something we do simply because we're told to do it. We do it because of the compelling love that we have for the one who loved us first. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for this morning, this time to be together and to celebrate with our brothers and sisters in Christ who took this step of obedience to profess publicly their allegiance to you. God, we're so grateful for them. We celebrate with them for, for that uh, act of obedience this morning. And God, we just pray for your grace and your help this week as we live to love you more, God. We, we know it's, it's easy to read and, and understand your word and to hear the, the truth of who you are and what you've done for us, and even to be excited about it as we stand here, God. And then we know when we get we leave here and we have life and, and everything, we have duties and things to take care of that is so easily lost on us. And Lord, we just pray that you would create in us a desire to know you and to love you because of what you've done for us and because we know that the way that you have called us to live is the way that is going to bring us the most lasting joy, the most lasting happiness in the truest sense of that word. And so God, we thank you for that. We thank that your way is best, that you know what is best for us, and we ask for your guidance in following after you and being distinct as followers of you. God, we thank you for your grace and your love for us, and we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.